shrouded in mystery, the biblical character known as Melchizedek disappears from the pages of the Bible as quickly as he appears. It's for this reason that the world is filled with many religious groups who are quick to claim Melchizedek for their own. For example, the Mormons and the Catholics, they both claim to have a priesthood which is based on the order of Melchizedek. And not only them, but Melchizedek has also become the figurehead of many New Age groups. For example, uh, you can Google these later. There is the Melchizedek Synthesis Light Academy. Then there's the Melchizedek Academy of Soul Education International. And then there's the Melchizedek Pleiadian Body of Light, which is headed by a woman who calls herself Enrita Melchizedek. Now, it's true that there are many religious groups in the world who claim Melchizedek for their own, and yet uh, this doesn't really give us any sort of clue of who he was. So who is Melchizedek? Well, some teachers tell us that Melchizedek is an archangel, sort of like Michael, while others say, no, he's just a mere human, and, and many argue that he was the son of a harlot. There are those who think that Melchizedek was a manifestation of God the Father, while others would have us to believe that Melchizedek is a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And in light of all of these opinions, there should be no doubt in our minds that Melchizedek is a man of great mystery. Well, here in our time today, we're going to examine what the Bible actually says about the mysterious manifestation of Melchizedek. And as we examine the text which is before us today, we'll begin to see, first of all, that the mysterious manifestation of Melchizedek reveals the kingly majesty of our Messiah. Secondly, we'll see that the mysterious manifestation of Melchizedek reveals the priestly ministry of our Messiah. And thirdly and finally, we'll see that the mysterious manifestation of Melchizedek reveals the heavenly mystery of our Messiah. Well, with this as our outline, let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. Here we find Paul. He's returning his readers to this topic of Melchizedek. As you make your way to Hebrews 7, I want to remind you about the main point so far in this epistle. You see, the main point is based on the fact that Paul was helping his Hebrew audience to understand that the ministry of the Messiah is better than any other ministry and is better in every way. You see, it was back in the beginning of this book where Paul revealed how the ministry of the Messiah is better than the ministry of the Old Testament prophets. And then after that, he showed us how the ministry of the Messiah is better than the ministry of the angels. After that, he revealed that the ministry of the Messiah is better than the ministry of Moses who brought the people out of Egypt. And, and not only that, but the ministry of the Messiah is also better than the ministry of Joshua who actually led the people into the land of promise. Furthermore, Paul also reminded his readers that the ministry of the Messiah is better than the entire Levitical priesthood which began with Aaron. I'll remind you, it was back in chapter 5 where Paul set out to prove this point by pointing us back to a prophecy that the Lord revealed through, the, through King David. And it was through King David where he described the Messiah as being an everlasting priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And so he introduced this topic of Melchizedek back in chapter 5, and now here we are in Hebrews 7, and Paul is now returning us to this topic, and he's presenting us with several parallels between our Messiah and the mysterious character known as Melchizedek. And with this as our focus, if you would look with me here at Hebrews chapter 7, we'll begin our study at verse 1. Here Paul declares, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all 
first being translated king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now here in our text today, we find Paul pointing back to the day when Abraham met this mysterious man known as Melchizedek. And as we examine the details of that story, which are actually found in Genesis chapter 14, we learn that there came this day when there were these four kings from the north and towards the east of Canaan. And these four kings formed a military confederacy. And that confederacy of kings, it included King of Shinar and also the, the King of Elisar, who were both located in the area which is currently called Iraq. Joining them was also the king of Goyim, which was likely the land which we now call Turkey, Syria, and Lebanon. And then fourthly and finally, there was the king of Elam, which is now known as Iran. According to Moses, those four kings from the north and east of Canaan, they formed this confederacy because they wanted to help the king of Elam regain his control over the people who were living in the valley of Siddim, which is now called the Dead Sea. In response to that invasion, there were five kings from the Dead Sea region who joined together and they attempted to defend their land against these invading armies, but however, they were soundly defeated. And according to Moses, the kings from the northeast, they defeated the, the, the five kings from the south and they ended up taking all the goods from Sodom and Gomorrah. They took all the provisions and then they went their way back to the northeast. And not only that, but they also carried away with them many captives from the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, which included Abraham's nephew, Lot. Thankfully for Lot, Abraham wasn't willing to just sit back and allow his nephew to become a slave of Elam. And Moses tells us that he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his house, and he led them on a rescue mission in order to save Lot as well as his family from that captivity. And if you're wondering about the outcome, well, then we need to look no further than Hebrews 7 verse 1. There in the middle of verse 1, Paul describes a decisive victory by calling this the slaughter of the kings. That's right, Abraham went and slaughtered those four kings from the north and the east of Canaan. Then after defeating that confederation of kings who came from the northeast, Abraham rescued Lot, he rescued Lot's family, and he led them back to their home. And as he was passing through the area, which we now know to be Jerusalem, he was met by a mysterious character who introduced himself by the title Melchizedek. And according to Paul, the identity of this individual, well, it was so controversial that he wasn't really sure that his Hebrew audience was ready to receive the entire truth of it all. As a matter of fact, it was back in Hebrews chapter 5, after introducing Jesus as being a priest in the order of Melchizedek, it's back in Hebrews chapter 5, 11, where Paul confesses that there was much more to say about Melchizedek. However, he had two real concerns. The first concern, well, it's based on the fact that the details about Melchizedek and the connection between Melchizedek and our Messiah is what he calls hard to explain what he says it's hard to explain secondly paul was concerned about the fact that they had become dull of hearing or in other words paul wasn't so sure that they could handle the whole truth about melchizedek and one reason why is because the jews there in the first century had been raised to believe that melchizedek was noah's son shem 
according to the Jewish encyclopedia, the rabbis identify Shem with Melchizedek. The rabbis also identify Shem as a priest who became the king of Salem, but then they go on to speculate that Shem forfeited the priesthood by mentioning Abraham's name before the name of God. It's in the blessing that Melchizedek presented to Abraham that he mentions Abraham's name first and then God most high second. And so some of the Jews said, well, that's when Shem, who they believed to be Melchizedek, lost his priestly position. They believed that God then gave that position to Abraham. That is one Jewish tradition. Another Jewish tradition is found in the Midrash Agadah, And according to this tradition, Shem himself asked God to give the priesthood to Abraham. That same account tells us that it was Shem who gave tithes to Abraham, showing that he recognized Abraham as a priest, rather than, according to this text, Abraham giving tithes to Melchizedek. Now, as we consider all of these traditional beliefs, which were held by the Jews, and and, and the, the rabbis there in the first century taught the Jews to believe these things, it's important to understand that Melchizedek was not a name, but rather a title. And they believe that this is a title given to Shem after he became the king of Salem. And and while there are many who still hold this position, there are many on the planet today who believe that Melchizedek was Shem, Paul here assures his audience that the traditional position is incorrect. Remember, it's back in chapter 5 where he says, hey, there's a lot more to say about Melchizedek, but it's hard to explain. Now, how hard is it to say Melchizedek was Shem? I mean, that's simple. And it's something that they already believed. Therefore, when he tells them that it's hard to explain and their ears were too dull to hear what he would have to say, then we have to assume that there's much more to this mysterious character called Melchizedek than the explanation that he's simply Shem. That being the case, we would do well to spend some time examining the identity of this mysterious individual. And the first thing that I should point out is that Melchizedek, it's not a name, but rather it's a title. And it's made up of two Hebrew words, the first of which is Melech, which means king. And the second root word is Sedek, which refers to the righteousness of a just government. And so we see then that this mysterious man who met Abraham, he introduces himself by this title, Melchizedek, which is to say, king of righteousness. And Paul confirms this interpretation there in the middle of verse 2, where he tells us that Melchizedek is actually translated king of righteousness. Well, not only does this individual introduce himself as the king of righteousness, but there in verse 1, Paul also tells us that Melchizedek was also the king of Salem. Now, as we consider this detail, it's common for people to assume that Melchizedek must have been some sort of king over an earthly city named Salem. And based on that belief, many scholars are quick to see that connection between Salem and Jerusalem. While we see here the word Salem in Jerusalem and, 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 and Jerusalem, which means cornerstone of peace, includes that root word Salem, which means peace. I have to tell you that there really is no evidence to prove that there was a city named Salem there in the land of Canaan during the days of Abraham. Just tells us here that he's the king of Salem. And in order to further explain the point that I'm seeking to make, let's take another look at this text. And if you would look with me beginning again at verse 1, where Paul writes for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, 
who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being, and here we see the translation of Melchizedek, first being translated king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, and now he presents the interpretation or translation of that, which means what? King of peace. Paul here is reminding his readers about the fact that Salem or Shalom, it's this Hebrew word which simply means peace. And while it's possible that Melchizedek was the king of an actual city named Salem, it's my personal belief that Paul is just simply helping his Hebrew audience to understand that Melchizedek was not only the king of righteousness, but he's also, simply put, the king of peace. And I believe that these titles provide us with the first clues which help us to identify this mysterious man. And we see right off the bat that he is a king of righteousness and he is a king of peace. And before we rush forward to a conclusion about who this person is, it's important to understand that Paul not only revealed the kingly majesty of Melchizedek, but he also points to the priestly ministry of Melchizedek. And in order to understand the importance of these details, let's turn our attention back to Hebrews 7. Look with me again at verse 1 where, where Paul declares for this Melchizedek, king of Salem. And notice he's priest of the most high God. He's priest of the most high God. And then there in, in, in verse three, we learn that he's without mother, without, uh, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the son of God remains a priest continually. Paul is describing Melchizedek as both a king and a priest. And that's an important point to make here because kings were usually kings and not priests, and priests were usually priests and not kings, and, and we don't really see a combining of these two ministries and responsibilities. I should also point out that the word priest found there in verse 1 and again in verse 3 it's translated from the same Greek word that the New Testament writers would use whenever they're writing about the priests of Israel. And yet at the same time, the original Greek word that Paul is using here, it's also used in reference to the pagan priests who offered sacrifices to false gods. And so the word priest could refer to a priest of God, but it could also refer to a pagan priest. For example, this is the word that Luke uses in Acts 14 verse 13 where he tells us about the priest of Zeus whose temple was in front of their city, and he brought oxen and garland to the gates intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. And so here we find that word priest being used of a pagan cult. In light of this, it's important to re realize that just because he's called a priest doesn't mean that he's a good priest. He, he could be a pagan priest. And so was Melchizedek a, a good priest or was he a pagan priest? And in order to answer this question, look with me again there at verse 1. Here again, Paul tells us that this Melchizedek was king of Salem and he tells us that he was priest of the Most High God. As we consider what Paul is saying here, it's important to remember that he's actually quoting Moses. He's quoting Genesis chapter 14, and it's in Genesis 14, verse 18, where Moses assured his audience that Melchizedek is the king of Salem, and he is, in fact, the priest of God Most High. Now, when Moses presents his readers with this title, God Most High, he's using the Hebrew El Elyon. That's my guess that Moses, simply uh, recording the title that Melchizedek presented to Abraham, I believe that Melchizedek introduced himself as... El, the, the, the priest of El Elyon. 
For the sake of clarity, I should remind you that the Hebrew word El is the root for the divine title Elohim, which is translated God in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And so there in the first verse of the first chapter of the first book of the Bible, God introduces himself as Elohim, and the root of that is El, E-L, which is what Melchizedek uses here in his title. The second word, Elyon, refers to the supreme sovereignty of the one who is above all. And so when, when, when Melchizedek introduces himself as the priest of El Elyon, he's assuring Abraham that he's not the priest of some pagan cult. No, instead, he is the priest uh, of God and God most high, God who is above and over all, the supreme sovereign God. And after introducing, introducing himself as the priest of El Elyon, or the Most High God, Melchizedek then assures Abraham that El Elyon is the same God who had given him the victory over his enemies. It's also interesting to note that King David used this same title for God in the 57th Psalm, where he declares, Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for my soul trusts in you. And in the shadow of your wings... I will make my refuge. Until these calamities have passed by, I will cry out to God Most High, El Elyon, to God who performs all things for me. In light of this, we can see that King David had no problem using the same title that Melchizedek gave to God. Not only that, but in the 78th Psalm, we find the seer named Asaph singing the praises of El Elyon by declaring, God is their rock and the most high God, El Elyon, is their redeemer. Finally, I would direct your attention to something Jesus said in Luke chapter 6. There he declares, love your enemies, do good, and lend hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the most high. He's using that most high God as a, as a title for, for the true and living God. And based on this, we can see then that the Lord Jesus encourages every person to worship and serve El Elyon. Well, now here in Hebrews 7, verse 1, we find Paul, he's assuring his Hebrew audience that Melchizedek was in fact the priest of the most high God, El Elyon. And at the same time, it's important for us to remember that Abraham met Melchizedek more than 600 years before the Lord established the Levitical priesthood there in Israel. Just take that in for a moment. That Melchizedek is claiming to be the priest of the most high God 600 years before the Levitical priesthood. And listen, that sacred position called the Levitical priesthood, it's called the Levitical priesthood because the priests of Israel were called from the lineage of Levi. And therefore, their genealogy was extremely important. You couldn't be a priest in Israel unless you were a descendant of Levi. And in light of this fact, we should notice again there in verse 3 where Paul tells us that Melchizedek was a priest who was without father, without mother, and without genealogy. He has no genealogy. And what a strange thing to say here. And it's strange on so many levels. And, and, and one reason why is because as we all recognize that uh, we all need a, you know, a father and a mother in order to exist. And yet Melchizedek was without father and without mother. 
Now, some will suggest that Paul is simply saying, well, we aren't sure who his parents were. But then Paul doubles down on what he was saying by assuring us that Melchizedek had no genealogy at all. The word genealogy is used in reference to the record of a person's familial lineage or or the account of their ancestry. And yet there in verse 3, Paul used the negative form of the word, which is to say that he's saying there's absolutely no account of Melchizedek's ancestry and there's no record of his familial uh, familial lineage. And and with that being the case, we can throw out the theory that Melchizedek was Noah's son, Shem. How can I say that? Well, there's no record of his genealogy. And so at best, all you can say is, if he's the son of somebody, we don't know who who he's the son of. Not only that, but this also raises an important question regarding the basis for his priestly position. And, and the question is this, how can Melchizedek serve as the, high, as the priest of the Most High God uh, without having a genealogical record of his familial lineage? Well, before we can answer this question, we should notice again there in the middle of verse 3. Again, at the beginning of verse 3, we learn that Melchizedek was without father and without mother and without genealogy. And then Paul takes it further and says that he has neither beginning of days nor end of life. As we consider what Paul's saying here, it seems clear to me that Paul wasn't trying to tell us that the genealogy of Melchizedek had been lost along the way. So like, well, we had his genealogy, it was on Hillary's computer, and now it's all missing, you know, it's just gone. We don't know. We don't know what happened. It's not like that. He's literally telling us here that Melchizedek has no genealogy because he was never born. He has no beginning of days. Now, how can you exist without a beginning of days? I like the way that the scholars who gave us the New Living Translation rendered this verse. They put it like this. There is no record of his father or mother or any of his ancestors, no beginning or end to his life. He remains a priest forever, resembling the Son of God. Now think about it. If it's true that Melchizedek had no beginning of life, then it's also true that he must be an infinite being in order to exist. He's an infinite being who has always been the priest the Most High God. And not only that, but if Melchizedek has no end to his life, then it's also true that he currently today remains a priest continually and forevermore. That word continually, which is found there at the end of verse 3, it points to a permanent and perpetual position. And it's for this reason that the scholars who gave us the RSV, they render this verse in this way, that he continues a priest forever. I like the way that the scholars who gave us the NASB version render it. They put it like this. He remains a priest perpetually. Now, as we add up all of these clues, we see here that Melchizedek, who's called the king of righteousness, is also the king possibly of a city named Salem, more than likely just has a secondary title, which is the king of peace. And not only is he the king of righteousness and the king of peace, but he's also the infinite priest of God Most High, who, according to Paul, is still serving as priest in this perpetual position. 
And as we consider the way in which Melchizedek was both this king and this priest, we must not fail to realize that the dual nature of his position was actually designed to unveil a heavenly mystery. Now this brings us to our third and final point because, listen, Paul not only refers to the kingly majesty of Melchizedek and he not only points to the priestly ministry of Melchizedek, but he also helps us to see how the manifestation of Melchizedek was actually a foreshadow of a heavenly mystery which is fulfilled in the Messiah Jesus Christ. And in order to understand what I mean, let's turn our attention back to Hebrews chapter 7. If you would look with me again, beginning at verse 1, here again Paul declares, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now here in these verses we find Paul, he's comparing Melchizedek to the Son of God. And for the sake of clarity, I'll remind you, it was back in Hebrews chapter 4 where Paul explicitly identifies the Lord Jesus Christ as being the Son of God. And so in the context of this book, we don't have a question about who is, who is the Son of God. We know that Paul's already identified Jesus as the Son of God. And with that being the case, Paul's essentially telling us here that Melchizedek was made like Jesus, the Son of God which is why he remains a priest continually. But now what does it mean that he was made like the Son of God? Well, in order to answer this question, I should first point out that the Greek words which are translated made like, this refers to a facsimile or an exact copy of the original. For example, if you work in an office, then the chances are you've made facsimiles or copies. We do this every time we go to the copy machine and, and we create copies of an original document. And, and the, the, the copy looks just like the original. And so we see Paul's telling us here that Melchizedek was a facsimile, a copy of the Son of God, who is Jesus Christ. But furthermore, he's not just a copy, he's a supernatural manifestation which is designed to reveal the, mi- the mystery of Christ's incarnation. And in order to prove my point, if you would hold your place here in the book of Hebrews, and I'd like you to turn with me to John chapter 8. And as you make your way to the 8th chapter of John's gospel account, I want to remind you that Melchizedek, as we've already learned, he had no father, he had no mother, there is no genealogy, and he has no beginning of days, no end of life, which is to say that he is an infinite being. And yet this infinite being decided to manifest himself in human form so that he could show up and bless Abraham after the battle against those kings. And as we consider this interaction between Melchizedek and Abraham, I believe that this is what the Lord Jesus is referring to here in John chapter 8. And with this as our focus, let's consider a question that Jesus was asked by the Jews. Uh, we find ourselves beginning here at verse 53. Here the Jews declare, are you greater than our father Abraham who is dead? And the prophets are dead. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered. If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him, and 
If I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Now, Jesus could drop the mic right there and just kind of walk off, right? But he doesn't. He takes a little bit further. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Now here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus, he's assuring his audience here that he spent time with Father Abraham. And knowing that it had been more than 2,000 years since the days of Abraham, they rightly ask, how can you say that you hung out with Abraham when you're not even 50 years old? As we consider their response to what Jesus is saying, it's clear to me that they were confused about the dual nature of Jesus. It's true that the humanity of Jesus was less than 50 years old. He was probably about 31 or 32 at this period of time. But that's just his humanity. Jesus then goes on to assure them that his divine nature is infinite. Let's consider the way that the Lord Jesus puts it here in John chapter 8. Look with me. We'll pick up at verse 58 here. Jesus says to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Here we find the Lord Jesus Christ claiming to be the I am, which is the name of God. And to those people who argue, well, Jesus never claimed to be God, you bring them here to John 8, 58, because here he says, I am. And in that, he's claiming to be God. And they knew that this is what he was claiming. How do I know they knew it? Well, because they picked up stones in order to stone him to death for blasphemy. They totally understood what he was saying which is why they wanted to murder him. They wanted to stone him to death because he he was claiming to be God incarnate. And in light of this, we can see then that the Lord Jesus was not only claiming to be the son of God, but he's also claiming to have spent time with Abraham. He says, before Abraham was, I am. and, And Abraham longed to see my day. And he saw it. He was claiming to have spent time with Abraham more than 2,000 years before, before he took on the frailty of humanity from the womb of the Virgin Mary. And as we consider this claim, it's my strong opinion that Abraham did in fact rejoice to see the revelation of his Redeemer. And he saw the revelation of his Redeemer on the day when he found himself in the presence of Melchizedek. I'll remind you as the king of peace and the priest of the most high God. In other words, when Abraham met Melchizedek, he was spending time with a pre-incarnate copy of Christ Jesus, which is what theologians refer to as a Christophany. Now, for the sake of clarity, a Christophany is a manifestation of God the Son prior to the day when Mary gave birth to the Lord Jesus. When the Lord Jesus was born through the womb of the Virgin Mary, that's when God the Son put on human frailty, and that is what we refer to as the incarnation of God the Son. Prior to that day, though, the Son of God infinitely existed. 
And you might not know this, but the Old Testament is actually filled with stories of the pre-incarnate Christ coming and walking with men and talking with men and, and, and accomplishing ministry in all kinds of supernatural ways. For example, in Genesis 32, we find Jacob, he's wrestling with a man. And we later find out that he was actually wrestling with God. The man that Jacob wrestled with turns out to be a pre-incarnate manifestation of God the Son. In Joshua chapter 5, we find Joshua, before the invasion of Jericho, meeting with the commander of the Lord's army, and the commander of the Lord's army was a pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ. We also find him in Daniel chapter 3. We find a Christophany standing in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and as they looked in, they saw a fourth man. And that fourth man was a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus Christ. And listen, this is just a scratch of the surface of all the times when God the Son took on the form of a human in some sort of supernatural way prior to his physical incarnation. And I believe that Melchizedek is one more example of a pre-incarnate manifestation of our Savior Jesus. As we put together all the pieces of the puzzle, it seems entirely reasonable for us to conclude this morning that Melchizedek wasn't a mere mortal man like Noah's son, Shem. That would be very easy to explain. No, the truth of it is very hard to explain, according to Paul. And with that, I believe he was an Old Testament Christophany, which is to say that he presented Abraham with a perfect copy of Christ Jesus. And he did this by appearing in some sort of human form 2,000 years before the incarnation of the virgin birth. And in this way, God was unveiling the heavenly mystery of our Messiah to Abraham 2,000 years before the King of Righteousness and the Priest of God Most High would literally become the seed of Abraham. In order to further grasp the way in which Melchizedek reveals this heavenly mystery of our Messiah, I want to take some time to consider Moses' account of the day when Abraham met the king of righteousness. And with this is our focus, if you would, let's turn to the 14th chapter of Genesis. And as you're making your way to Genesis 14, I want to take a moment to point out that the word mystery, when we find that in the Bible, it comes from the Greek word mysterion. And the word mysterion it, it, it's not like Scooby and Shaggy, you know, going to try to solve, you know, a, a crazy mystery, right? It, it's not like that. The, the word mysterion refers to the secret counsels of God, which are hidden from ungodly and wicked men, but become plain to those who trust in Jesus Christ. And here in Genesis 14, we find Melchizedek, he's revealing the secret counsels of God. He's revealing a mystery which would be fulfilled by our Messiah, Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, look with me there at Genesis 14. We'll begin reading at verse 18. Here we learn that Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hands. Now here in these verses we find Melchizedek. He's revealing this heavenly mystery of the Messiah. And he did this by serving Abraham. Notice again in verse 18, bread and wine. Which I'll remind you, these are 
symbols of our Savior's sacrifice. These are symbols which point to the incarnation and the crucifixion of our Messiah. Now, some will insist, hey, slow down. You shouldn't read too much into this. I mean, you know, everybody was eating bread and drinking wine back then, right? Don't make much to do about all of this. And yet I'll remind you that the mysteries of God are the secret counsels which are hidden from ungodly and wicked men, but plain to those who trust in Jesus. And I don't know how plain it is for Melchizedek, the king of Salem, the king of priests, to bring out bread and wine, but I say, that's pretty plain to me. As we add up all of the details, I can't help but to believe that Melchizedek was prophetically pointing to the sacrifice of Jesus. In light of this, I would ask you to consider the words of an early church father known as Cyprian of Carthage. It was back in the middle of the third century when he connected Melchizedek with our Messiah by writing, in the priest Melchizedek, we see the sacrament of the sacrifice of the Lord prefigured in accord with that to which the divine scriptures testify. According to this early church father, Melchizedek wasn't simply offering Abraham something to eat. No one said he was revealing the heavenly mystery of the Messiah, and he did this by prophetically presenting Abraham with the symbols of our Savior's sacrifice. Abraham saw the day of Jesus in Melchizedek. In order to further prove my point, I'll remind you of something that Matthew wrote. It's in Matthew 26, where Matthew tells us that it was on the night of the Lord's arrest when Jesus took bread. And he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Based on this, we can see that the Lord Jesus used bread and wine as symbols of his substitutionary sacrifice. And with that being the case, it's easy for me to believe that Melchizedek, who appears to be a pre-incarnate manifestation of our Messiah, would use the same exact symbols of bread and wine in order to show Abraham the heavenly mystery of our Father's plan. Not only that, but it also makes sense that this was the moment when Abraham rejoiced to see the day of Jesus. Because this was the moment when Abraham had communion with the king of righteousness and the priest of God most high. Now here we are, a little over 4,000 years after Abraham met with Melchizedek, and we know now that Jesus has fulfilled that heavenly mystery. And as a result, now we too can have communion with God through the sacrifice of our Savior. Now, as we begin to wrap up our study, we should take a moment to ask, well, how should we apply then the mysterious manifestation of Melchizedek to our life today? What does all this mean for us? And with this question in mind, I'll remind you that the mysterious manifestation of Melchizedek reveals the kingly majesty of our Messiah. And seeing how Melchizedek was the king of righteousness, 
This reminds us of the fact that Jesus is our king of righteousness. And those who trust in Jesus, those who trust in the king of kings, well, we receive by faith the imputed righteousness of the king of righteousness. And as we receive that imputation of his righteousness, we are cleansed from the stain of sin. And so if you trust in the king of righteousness, then you have been made righteous. Not only that, but Melchizedek also reminds us that Jesus is the king of peace. Therefore, those who trust in Jesus and those who walk by faith with the king of kings, well, we will also enjoy the peace that surpasses all understanding. And this is a peace that only Jesus can provide. Secondly, the mysterious manifestation of Melchizedek reveals the priestly ministry of our Messiah. And what this means is that much like Melchizedek, the Lord Jesus is the priest, the, the, the perpetual priest, the infinite priest of God most high. And it's for this reason that Paul will go on to tell us that Jesus, as this high priest, is able to save to the uttermost those who come to him through him. And the reason why is because he always lives to make intercession for us. Melchizedek, being this continuing perpetual priest, reminds us that Jesus is there in heaven as our high priest continually interceding for us. And therefore, today and every day we can come to the throne of grace and receive the help that we need. Finally, the mysterious manifestation of Melchizedek reveals the heavenly mystery of our Messiah. And much like Melchizedek, who invited Abraham to enter into communion with him with bread and wine, the Lord Jesus also invites us to enter into communion with him through his broken body and through his blood. It's through the sab, uh, substitutionary sacrifice that he offered there on the cross that we can enter into communion with God. And in order to sum it all up, the mysterious manifestation of Melchizedek helps us to see that our Messiah, Jesus, who is the King of Kings, he covers us with his righteousness and he provides us with perfect peace and he is the holy priest of the most high God who offers himself as a substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf so that we can enter into communion with him. As a result, those who trust in Jesus, well, we gain the victory over every enemy as we enter into communion with God through the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Simply put, the mysterious manifestation of Melchizedek was designed to reveal the ministry of our Messiah, Jesus. And with that being the case, I believe that we would all do well to follow in the footsteps of Abraham. And the way we do this is by stopping to worship the King of Righteousness and the Priest of God Most High. Let's pray.